0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Linda Yen, and I will be your host today. I am joined by Dr. Erin O'Brien, who is a rhinologist. Dr. O'Brien, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Dr. Yen, for inviting me. All right, so
0: today we're going to be discussing some anesthesia protocols for endoscopic sinus surgery and how to optimize anesthesia before, during, and after endoscopic procedures. A couple of disclaimers before we start. We will go over some basic uh, physiology and pharmacology that is relevant to anesthesia, Uh, but we, of course, are um, not anesthesiologists. Dr. O'Brien is a sinus surgeon. And so we will just focus on some of the basic things that an ENT should understand uh, and not go into levels of extreme detail. The second disclaimer is that we will only be speaking about studies and protocols that apply to adult patients undergoing anesthesia and uh, will not be discussing the pediatrics population. So Dr. O'Brien, why is this an important topic to discuss? And why do ENT residents and students need to understand a little bit about anesthesia?
1: There's a couple important things to think about, especially with sinus surgery. First is patient safety. We need to make sure that we're optimizing anesthesia so we can decrease blood loss because less bleeding is, less, um, is better visualization for endoscopic sinus surgery. When there's less bleeding and we can see better, we're more efficient and we can decrease operating room time. This is important for patient comfort, but we also need to think about cost. Um, In understanding what goes on with decisions regarding anesthesia, it involves postoperative pain management and postoperative nausea and vomiting. Again, going back to cost, the type of anesthetic we use, the length of OR time, also the recovery time for the patient and the PACU, and the medications are also something to consider. Anesthesiologists have the same goals as us. They also want good outcomes for patients, and so it's important for us to plan ahead of time what anesthetics we're going to use for these endoscopic sinus cases. Thank you. I think
0: that's very well put. So let's jump right into it. So let's start first with some preoperative considerations. So say you've booked a patient for an endoscopic sinus surgery. What does a basic preoperative workup consist of for that patient?
1: Well, outpatient FAST is considered a low-risk procedure from an anesthetic perspective. So you'll want to talk to your anesthesia team about what protocols they want. In general, with someone with low risk factors, there's not a lot of testing that's necessary, but you will want to consider some medical comorbidities. You'll want to talk to the patient about whether they have sleep apnea, because you need to talk about whether they can use CPAP after surgery or not, Um, if they're on antihypertensives, if they have coronary artery disease, and what their pulmonary status is, especially if they have comorbid asthma, or cystic fibrosis. And uh, you want to review what medications they're on. So let's talk a little more
0: about the medications. What should a patient hold before sinus surgery? um, And what should they continue? And or what new medications should they take in preparation for sinus surgery?
1: So for most general anesthetics, uh, you want to review what antihypertensives they are on. So ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Um, can affect how well the anesthesiologist could control uh, their blood pressure during surgery. But more importantly for us as sinus surgeons is any aspirin or anticoagulation because, again, bleeding can make it difficult for us to visualize during endoscopic sinus surgery. I will say there's not a lot of data on this, but if they're on aspirin because they've been desensitized for AERD Coming off aspirin would be something you'd want to discuss because going through desensitization again should be considered prior to surgery. Any blood thinning supplements like vitamin E, saw palmetto, omega-3 fatty acids, or the four G's, ginseng, garlic, ginger, ginkgo biloba, all those can affect bleeding. And so you'll want to review supplements with patients as well.
0: Is there any role for prescribing steroids for some of our patients before surgery, especially, you know, the ones with polyps?
1: Yes, absolutely. So there's some good data on preoperative steroids. There's a meta-analysis that shows giving preoperative systemic steroids can decrease bleeding time and decrease operative time and improve visibility. There's also some literature that topical steroids can have similar effects. And in fact, there's a triologic best practice paper recommends preoperative treatment of patients with steroids undergoing sinus surgery to receive corticosteroids. Um, You'll have to consider comorbidities if they're diabetic, how much stomach steroids they've had, and you'll want to talk to your patients about sort of the risks and benefits of steroids, but there are definitely some good studies that show there are benefits during surgery to preoperative steroids.
0: Okay. Now, kind of moving forward to the day of surgery and the preoperative time frame, when we're discussing the plan of the day with the anesthesia team and briefing the room, what types of things should we communicate to each other?
1: And Dr. Yen, you bring up a good point, which is the briefing. So every day in the OR before we start, we go through every case and talk about that specific patient and the protocol. We like to talk about what our goals are and our plans. One thing we talk about is preoperative medication for nausea and vomiting, what type of endotracheal tube, what anesthetic we want, our blood pressure goals, and our postoperative plan.
0: Okay. Well, let's start with the preoperative medications. So what can we give preoperatively or even intraoperatively
1: to reduce pain and nausea after surgery? So there's triple anti-emetic protocol that we use. And first is droperidol and on ondansetron, and then at a minimum, a anti-nausea dose of dexamethasone. There's very good evidence that that triple anti-emetic significantly decreases nausea and vomiting postoperatively. If someone has a history of really severe post-op nausea and vomiting, then, then the anesthesiologist will use a scopolamine patch for those patients. What about prophylactically giving
0: any pain medication before surgery?
1: Yes, there is very good evidence that preoperative Tylenol has a couple of benefits. So it decreases postoperative pain, but it also decreases postoperative nausea and vomiting, which you may not expect with Tylenol, and it may be because they're receiving less narcotic pain medicine postoperatively. But we make sure that everyone gets an oral dose of Tylenol or acetaminophen prior to surgery. It also decreases PACU recovery time.
0: What are your thoughts about throat packs? This is kind of jumping more intraoperatively, but um, you know, historically, I've read a lot of folks like to use throat packs. Do you have any personal thoughts on that or any evidence-based um, thoughts on that?
1: So personally, I'm not a fan um, and there is literature to support not using them. So they do cause more increased throat pain in studies of throat packs. They don't necessarily decrease nausea and vomiting. Theoretically, I'm concerned about uh, risk of a retained item. Say that, oh, our team changes over or someone forgets to pull it. I I would just rather not have it in. And then I I just suction the stomach at the end of the case. And um, suctioning out the stomach can uh, potentially decrease the risk of post-op nausea and vomiting.
0: Okay, and let's kind of end this section with talking about the airway plan. Um, Are there any specific airway considerations for endoscopic
1: sinus surgery? So options basically come down to, for a general anesthetic, uh, laryngeal mask airway or LMA or oral intubation. So an LMA potentially uh, may be better tolerated. And there there has been one study where they used an LMA versus an endotracheal tube for sinus surgery. The LMA had less blood in the upper airway, but there was more blood in the lower airway. And there is potentially a risk of regurgitation of air from the stomach with an LMA. So in my practice, we do oral intubation, um, but I know there are some practices that do use LMAs.
0: Okay, speaking of blood, let's kind of jump into our next section here and talk about intraoperative bleeding. outside of the obvious reasons of wanting to minimize blood loss, why else should us as surgeons care about intraoperative bleeding?
1: Well, for endoscopic cytosurgery, it's important because if you're getting bleeding on your scope, it's going to be difficult to visualize the anatomy and you want to have a clean scope. You want to minimize the time taking the scope in and out or using the endoscrub or whatever mechanism you have to wash the end of the scope. And You want to be able to see the anatomy clearly. And also when there's a lot of blood in the airway, it absorbs some of that light so you don't get the reflection of light as well. And just makes it harder to see. So for that reason with endoscopic procedures, we really care about bleeding.
0: I've heard people sort of grade the amount of intraoperative bleeding. Are there any official classification systems we can use to assess intraoperative bleeding?
1: In a lot of these studies that are comparing anesthetic protocols, they do uh, assessments during the case with these bleeding scales. One of them is the beaux scale from 1995, which is a 0 to 5 grading scale with 0 being no bleeding and 5 being really severe bleeding where you can't keep up with the amount of bleeding with your suction. More recently, there was the Wormald scale, which came out... Um, More recently, it has a zero to 10 point scale. And again, it goes from no bleeding to severe bleeding. But the Wormald scale has higher inter and intra greater reliability. And so you're seeing more and more papers using that Wormald scale more recently. What are some measures that we can take
0: during the case to decrease intraoperative bleeding?
1: So there's been a lot of talk about deliberate hypotension, so keeping the blood pressure down to decrease the amount of bleeding. Um, I think that's oversimplified, though. When we're thinking about uh, blood pressure, blood pressure is systemic vascular resistance times cardiac output. And I'm not an anesthesiologist and not a physiologist, so I won't get into it too much. But to decrease blood pressure, you can either cause vasodilation or reduce cardiac output. You might think that vasodilating to get the bl- blood pressure down would be advantageous, but for sinus surgery, if you're vasodilating, you're dilating the mucosal vessels, and that actually causes more bleeding. And in response to vasodilation, you get reflex tachycardia, so the heart rate goes up. So you got more bleeding, and then the heart rate goes up. So just reducing SVR and vasodilating is not ideal. So how low should the blood
0: pressure be? How low is safe, but also good enough to minimize bleeding?
1: Yes, certainly. So the most important thing is the patient, of course. And we want to maintain cerebral perfusion and renal perfusion. And so what they found is that the ideal pressure, at least the mean arterial pressure, should be kept above 60. there was a study that showed less than 60 was less bleeding, but it decreased cerebral perfusion. So in general, we tell you anesthesia, keep the MAP above 60. Um, there's many other ways, though, we can decrease the bleeding besides just affecting the uh, the blood pressure. Oh, yes. You're teasing into my next question, maybe. So,
0: um, you know, of course, I know we use a lot of topical medications. Can you kind of run through those with us and how that can help decrease bleeding?
1: So there's a number of vasoconstrictors that we can use, and we can get into that. But topical vasoconstrictors uh, can be really helpful. But there's some other options. So one is tranexamic acid. And TXA or tranexamic acid helps uh, prevent clot breakdown. And it's well-tolerated. It can be used topically or systemically. And systemically, you can give a dose of one gram You can either give it preoperatively or you can give it during surgery. And especially if someone is a chronic afrin or nasal decongestant abuser, giving TXA preoperatively can help decongest the nose and decrease bleeding. And then topically, you can use a 5% solution. And it improves surgical field for about 30 minutes and uh, can decrease bleeding overall. There really are very few side effects with TXA, uh, maybe some GI distress, but there's no increased risk of thrombosis.
0: Yeah, I think that's a common misconception. Um, So you mentioned topical vasoconstrictors. There's a ton to talk about there, and I want to get deeper into that. But before we jump into that, is there anything else simple or conservative we can do as surgeons to help minimize bleeding outside of medications?
1: So patient positioning can make a big difference. So elevating the head of bed, we try to do 10 to 15 degrees. Uh, That reduces venous pressure in the head, reduces some mucosal blood flow, and does make it uh, better, easier to see. There are uh, papers that show that elevating the head of bed improves visualization. And then worm saline. So worm saline comes from neurosurgery where they use it frequently. And in a study of sinus surgery, 49 degrees centigrade, rinsing with that did help visualization. So it actually causes vasodilation, but that edema in the mucosa decreases bleeding. And hot saline or warm saline is more effective than room temperature. And in a study comparing the two, there was less blood loss and improved visualization, especially as a case is longer, so longer than two hours, There's good evidence that warm saline is effective. And then in general, you want to make sure your patient is warm because a hypothermic patient has um, increased clotting time.
0: Okay. Those are some pretty simple measures I think we can all try to take. Let's get into these topical vasoconstrictors now. So can you tell us the common ones that are used and how they work?
1: So there's a number of options for vasoconstrictors for sinus surgery. Traditionally... Uh, most people used 4% cocaine, and a number of surgeons still use cocaine. I use topical cocaine for fest cases. It is a vasoconstrictor, but it is also a topical anesthetic, and you want to use it judiciously, especially in patients with any uh, cardiovascular disease, but another uh, option that's being used more widely now is epinephrine, 1 to 1,000 on pledgets. It's a non selective adrenergic agonist. And compared to cocaine, there's similar blood loss and surgical field scores. Potentially, you also want to be careful in patients with uh, cardiovascular disease. And if you have injections up on the field, then you want to make sure you stain the epinephrine uh, so it doesn't accidentally get injected. So you can use fluorescein or a marker to stain it. So you can differentiate it from other liquids on the field. And then finally, topically, you can use afrin or oxymetazoline. It's an alpha agonist and potentially safer than epinephrine for PEDS cases. As far as injections, a lot of people use, and I use 1% lidocaine with 1 to 100,000 epinephrine. I inject the uh, head of the inferior turbinate, the axilla of the middle turbinate, the middle turbinate attachment back by the SPA and the lateral nasal wall. There are some studies that show improved surgical field scores and others that don't. So there's some controversy here. Uh, One study did show that injecting LIDO with epi decreased postoperative pain medication and led to an earlier discharge from the PACU. If you're going to inject, tell your anesthesiologist because there's potentially a risk of some tachycardia or arrhythmia or hypotension after the injections.
0: We're going to move on now and talk more about the actual anesthetic drugs that are used. And for this, we'll need to understand a little bit of the pharmacology behind those drugs as well. So broadly speaking, what kind of types of anesthesia is available uh, for endoscopic sinus surgery?
1: Yeah. So briefly for general anesthesia, we're talking about IV anesthetics and inhaled volatile anesthetics. IV anesthetics would be uh, propofol, and that's often combined with a narcotic such as remifentanil. The benefit of IV anesthesia is faster onset and faster recovery. Um, there's potentially, though, a risk of a higher recall with propofol compared to some of the inhaled agents. And you can get hypotension with propofol, even though you don't get vasodilation. Propofol is nice because there's lower rates of post-op nausea and vomiting. The other general category for anesthesia are inhaled vol- volatile anesthetics, such as sevoflurane or Desflurane. Um, there's some benefit in that the inhaled anesthetics are associated with less movement, more muscle relaxation, uh, less recall. But um, you can have some potential um, systemic vasodilation and higher rates of post-op nausea and vomiting. Specifically for sevoflurane, it does cause bronchodilation. Uh, There is a benefit of more hemodynamic stability, but more post-op nausea and vomiting and slower clearance. Desflurane, which is another good volatile anesthetic, has a faster clearance, but it may cause more intraoperative coughing. And especially with uh, someone with some uh, airway disease, they may be more prone to coughing. And so, basically, those are the two general categories that we think about for anesthesia.
0: I hear the term TIVA a lot in, uh, in endoscopic sinus cases. TIVA, I believe, stands for total intravenous anesthesia. What is it?
1: So this goes to this speaks to propofol plus an opioid, and generally that's remifentanil. Uh, but some anesthesiologists will add other medications like a benzodiazepine. Um, alphanergic agonists like clonidine or dexmedetomidine. You can also add um, nitrous oxide. Propofol plus remifentanil for sinus surgery has a benefit of hypotension and bradycardia. So you get that um, a decreased blood pressure, so you get less bleeding. Remifentanil has a very short half-life. So when the case is over, they can turn it off. The patient has a faster wake-up. Nitrous oxide also can be combined with tiva. And when nitrous oxide is added, there's less use of propofol, so you don't need as much of the drug and potentially a faster emergence. And adding that to a TVA, at least in one study, had the same visualization during FES as propofol REMI alone.
0: So what's better? What should we use? Tiva or some of these inhaled anesthetics?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of studies on this, comparing pure Tiva versus just inhaled anesthetics. And there's not only been a lot of studies, but there's actually been five systematic reviews or meta analyses of TIVA versus inhaled anesthetics for FES. In general, though, studies have shown that TIVA gives uh, better intraoperative bleeding scores, so lower scores, lower amounts of blood loss, and lower rates of blood loss without any significant difference in the heart rate or the mean arterial pressure. I will say there is uh, one study of Tiva versus desflurane, which with remifentanil, which did not show a difference, and none of them used any alpha agonists. Um, the other benefit of Tiva is it's been shown to have a shorter operative time. In practice, though, and talking to my colleagues in anesthesia and reviewing some of the anesthesia literature, it's fairly rare to use pure Tiva alone. So there's a a study out of. 20, from 2020, of 200 anesthesiologists who were doing sinus surgery, and most of them weren't familiar with this TIVA FESS literature. Um, and when asking them what they preferred for FESS, 60% did choose TIVA and 40% used inhaled anesthetics. Uh, but most of them actually said they tend to use a small amount of inhaled anesthetics with their TIVA to make sure that the patient has intraoperative amnesia.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So, despite all of the studies, it seems that that's not necessarily what people do in real life. So, what do people do uh, in real life? You talked about the kind of inhaled TIVA combo. Um, is there a name for that protocol?
1: So, in the anesthesia literature, there are more and more papers coming about out about this combined intravenous volatile anesthesia. Um, you can call it a SIVA, I guess. Um, Frankly, I've heard people call it a dirty TIVA, which is not what it's described as in the literature, but it is IV anesthesia with some uh, gas on board as well. So you get the benefit of both IV and volatile anesthetics.
0: What are some added benefits of using these two in a combined fashion?
1: When you have both IV and volatile anesthetics, you have this synergism because they work differently, and you can reduce the dose and the dose-dependent side effects of each. You get the um, hypnosis or the uh, decreased awareness with the volatiles, but you also get the benefit of the antiemetic properties of propofol. And with the inhaled anesthetic, you have less movement as well, and you don't need as much opioids. Compared to just TIVA alone. And the volatiles give you more stable blood pressure and heart rate. What about any kind of outcomes level evidence? Um,
0: th- is this actually better than TIVA alone? And, you know, with all those studies out there in TIVA, has anyone looked at comparing these two?
1: So, to my knowledge, it hasn't been compared yet, specifically for FES, But in general, a large study came out of the anesthesia literature recently that there's less recall with the combined anesthetic versus TIVA. There is no increased post-op nausea and vomiting when you add sevoflurane to propofol, but the combined has less movement than tiva, and it may actually have a shorter time to extubation, although there's mixed data on that, and post-op pain is the same. So, a number of benefits in a large meta-analysis in the anesthesia literature.
0: Are there any other drugs that we should consider uh, as part of our anesthesia plan? You mentioned... Uh, dexametomidine earlier. Should we add that? Is there any role for that or any other special drugs?
1: So dexametomidine or Presidex is a selective alpha-2 agonist. It has central sympatholytic activity, also decreases the mean arterial pressure and heart rate, plus it causes some vasoconstriction. And in FES, there is some evidence that it improves visual field versus a placebo. Um, you also can see this benefit with esmolol, um, and dexmedetomidine was better than clonidine. And in a randomized controlled trial of Presidex plus Tiva, for a FEST, there was improved visual field, lower blood loss, and decreased propofol. It is more expensive than propofol, and so there's some debate about whether it's cost effective or not. What about gabapentin? There was some
0: talk of that in the head and neck literature. What about in sinus surgery?
1: So gabapentin is a GABA analog. It does cross the blood-brain barrier, and it has an analgesic effect. And there was some, um, there was one study in FES where gabapentin decreased postoperative pain, decreased the analgesic use, but it increased dizziness. And in the anesthesia literature, there's been more recent evidence that although it does decrease pain the side effects of dizziness, visual disturbance, and more concerning the increased risk of respiratory depression has led to anesthesiologists not to recommend it in their literature.
0: Great. I think that's a good segue kind of into our closing section. So how painful is sinus surgery and what should we do um, towards the, is there anything we can do toward the end of the case to ensure that the patient has a, su- a successful recovery
1: in the post-operative unit? So in general, it is not especially painful. It shouldn't be especially painful, especially in a mucosal-preserving surgery. Um, but there's a couple things you can do to help with post-op pain. Um, as when you're getting near the end of the case, um, you want to tell anesthesia that you have about 20 minutes left, and that helps them start to turn down the uh, propofol. Um, A couple other things, not necessarily related to pain, but just in general for the end of the case, you can apply some topical oxymetazoline for some vasoconstriction. That may be a good time to use that warm saline irrigation and then suction suction out the stomach so there's less post-op nausea and vomiting. Going back to pain, um, I talk to patients about this ahead of time and say there's really not going to be much pain. And so I limit how much post-op pain medication I give. And for someone who does not have aspirin or ibuprofen sensitivity, such as patients with aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease, if they don't have any contraindications, I will tell them it's okay to start an NSAID. So ibuprofen, I think, is fine postoperatively. Great. And then tying
0: everything together, kind of wrapping together everything that we talked about, um, do you think that it's important to have a shared perioperative protocol with anesthesia? And if so, why why is it important to have a protocol for sinus surgery?
1: So I'm going to advocate for any anyone doing uh, sinus surgery to have a plan with their anesthesiologist, like we talked about, and try to protocolize this so that everyone has the same plan going in and knows what expected outcomes are. Uh, I think it just makes it go much more smoothly to talk about what medications beforehand, what type of anesthesia, what the PACU plan is going to be. Once you've got a good plan for sinus surgery, these also carry over for skull base cases. In an institution with a lot of trainees or if you're working with a lot of different uh, anesthesiologists or nurse anesthetists, it's nice to have a protocol so you're decreasing variability For instance, we'll say, please use the FEST protocol, and so that everyone's on the same page about what the plan is. And again, we talked about briefings at the beginning of surgery, so you talk about what the plan is. Um, I think it helps with recovery for the patient and outcomes. In our own institution, we found that following the protocol led to less post-op nausea and um, a quicker recovery. And patients appreciate that, and from a cost perspective, that's uh, very important as well.
0: Awesome. Well, I certainly learned a lot. Thank you for spending this time with me and teaching all this to me. Is there anything else left that we haven't covered that you would like to cover?
1: No, I think um, I think we covered everything. Dr. Yen, thank you for inviting me. Again, I, I encourage everyone to talk to their anesthesia team about having a protocol, uh, looking at some of the literature, and uh, you'll improve your Safety and efficacy and lead to better patient outcomes with good anesthesia protocols.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Dr. O'Brien, for your time. Thank you. Great. We're going to jump into the summary section now where I will be summing up some key points from the talk. So, the main goals of peri anesthetic protocols in endoscopic sinus surgery include decreasing blood loss to allow for better visualization, improving efficiency and the speed of operating to decrease operating room time, improving patient comfort during, before, and after surgery, including reducing pain and nausea and vomiting, saving costs in terms of anesthesia, OR time, recovery time, as well as the medications that are used. Preoperatively, a thorough medical evaluation should be conducted to figure out the patient's comorbidities and also to hold any medications that might increase the risk of bleeding. Preoperative steroids can be considered as well in select patients. There's some evidence that steroids can decrease bleeding and operative time, specifically for sinus surgery. It is really important to maintain excellent preoperative as well as intraoperative communication with the anesthesia team. This includes briefing before the case to come up with a joint plan, as well as speaking continuously during the case if anything does not go according to that plan. Preoperative medications can be given to reduce postoperative nausea and vomiting, and this is typically involving a triple anti-emetic therapy that consists of droperidol, ondansetron, which is Zofran, as well as dexamethasone, which is a steroid. A scopolamine can also be added for folks that have severe postoperative nausea and vomiting. Oral Tylenol can also be given before surgery, which might help reduce not only postoperative pain, but also nausea and vomiting as well. TIVA stands for total intravenous anesthesia. SIVA stands for combined IV and volatile anesthesia. TIVA offers some advantages over traditional inhaled anesthetics such as sevoflurane, and this includes less bleeding and a faster emergence. SIVA also offers these benefits, but might also have some additional advantages over TIVA, and that can include less recall and less movement during the surgery. Reduction of intraoperative bleeding is key and some simple measures we can take to achieve this include elevating the head of the bed and using warm saline irrigation. Deliberate hypotension should try to be we should try to achieve that and that typically involves a MAP that is uh, as low as possible but just over uh, 60 is the limit we don't want to necessarily go below. Topical vasoconstrictors are also the mainstay of hemostasis in sinus surgery. Um, Injections are optional, uh, but may also uh, decrease um, some of the recovery time afterwards. TXA is something that's fairly new, but we want to emphasize it's very safe and should be considered topically or even systemically during sinus surgery. Okay, moving on to some questions now, I will be providing a question and giving a brief pause and then giving the answer. First question, there are a number of blood thinning supplements that should be avoided before surgery. What are the four G's and which supplements are these? The four G's stand for ginseng, garlic, ginger, and ginkgo biloba all of which can increase the risk of bleeding during surgery. In addition, vitamin E, salt, palmetto, and omega-3 fatty acids are some other blood thinning medications that should be avoided before surgery. What are some advantages and disadvantages of using an LMA as an airway during endoscopic sinus surgery? Using an LMA instead of orally intubating a patient can lead to less blood accumulation in the upper airway, but it may also lead to more blood accumulation in the lower airway. There is also a risk of regurgitation and reflux with an LMA if too much air is ventilated into the stomach. What are some common grading systems that are often used to assess intraoperative bleeding in sinus surgery? There are two main grading systems. The first is the beaux scale, which runs from zero to five. And the second is, is the Wormald surgical field grading scale, which runs from zero to 10. The Wormald scale is more recent and has been shown to have a higher inter and intra intergrader reliability. What temperature should warm saline be when used as irrigation and to assist in hemostasis? Warm saline should be heated to 49 degrees Celsius or 120 degrees Fahrenheit. True or false, gabapentin is recommended in the perioperative period for endoscopic sinus surgery. The statement is false. Gabapentin, while it is a GABA analog that, that offers a good alternative to opioid pain medication, has some significant side effects, including dizziness and visual disturbances, and most importantly, respiratory depression, and it is not recommended to be used perioperatively in the anesthesia literature. Those are all my questions. Thank you for listening and tune in next time to ENT in a Nutshell.